Brian Hayden is a professor of archaeology at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, just outside Vancouver. His research has focused on the use of resources and energy in prehistoric societies, as well as stone technology and feasting rituals in prehistoric cultures. Today we're going to talk about his landmark book about prehistoric religion, Shamans, Sorcerers, and Saints which is not only stuffed with research and careful thought, but also tons of photos and illustrations and maps and so forth. Dr. Hayden, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be there. So you are an archaeologist, and I think the only way that we're going to understand what that means is if you compare and contrast yourself with Indiana Jones. (laughs) Well, Indiana Jones is a romanticized, action-packed version of what we usually do, <laughs> and, uh, panders to everybody's vivid imaginations. Uh, in reality, archaeology is um, you know, it's not <clears throat> glory hunting, uh, treasure seeking, uh, or other things. So it's, it's a lot of hard work and basic science, and like any any good science. It uh, involves a lot of routine, a lot of um, mind-numbing recording of data and things like that, but um, it does share the the uh, enjoyment of being outside in exotic places many times, and so that's hard to ignore. Well, and how much of your work is buried in books and papers versus in the field digging up stuff versus fighting the Nazis with your whip? <laughs> well, I do have a bullwhip, but I only use it in classrooms to illustrate uh, what kinds of tools archaeologists need, uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> I have become relatively proficient with it over the years. But, um, no, I try to maintain a good balance. I mean, there are armchair archaeologists and there are field archaeologists, but I, I like to think uh, balance the two, a nice equilibrium is probably the most satisfying, uh, at least for me personally. I've been out in the field every season pretty much for most of my career. Hmm. Sort of tapered off a little bit in the last few years, but uh, I I enjoy camping out, uh, digging in the dirt, finding interesting things, trying to solve problems and questions of how artifacts got there and what kind of biases there might be and you know, what different kinds of soils represent or sediments or deposits and actually what what events brought all those things together. Okay. So uh, that's taken me out into also <clears throat> a lot of um, study of ethnographic groups, you know, tribal groups uh, in various parts of the world. Um, and they use traditional technologies or pre-industrial technologies and have many of the same problems to deal with that people in prehistory had to deal with. So how do you store food without refrigeration, without uh, electricity, without uh, all the modern conveniences? And how do you deal with risks? How do you make tools to solve various problems? Um, There's a whole range of interesting problems that people still deal with uh, in sort of traditional societies that are very interesting for archaeologists. Where they throw their garbage is one of the key ones. Hmm. Well, in Shamans, Sorcerers, and Saints, you write that the ideas of that book have been developing in you for at least a decade. 
Why did you write the book, and what do you hope it will give to the reader? Well, there are a number of reasons. I've always been pretty interested in um, questions about the supernatural, if you like. And so when I started to, when I went to Australia to study how people people made stone tools and used stone tools, uh, they invited me into their rituals as the most important part of their culture. Mm. And uh, it's, uh, I, I think it really began, stemmed out of those experiences in Australia initially. And then when I went to uh, study some of the t- traditional culture in the Mayan highlands among some of the Mayan communities there, <clears throat> once again, I was involved in a lot of the rituals. Those were the most important things for them, too. And so we had a situation where that's what people themselves valued the most. And the, it raised a number of interesting questions for a traditionally trained archaeologist in ecology and optimal foraging theories and things like that. And, you know, these things had nothing to do with uh, optimal foraging or with ecology. They, they seem to be divorced. And so trying to wed the two together, try to see what kind of relationship might exist between people's ritual practices and the ecology, the adaptations that they had, was an interesting problem. <clears throat> and, uh, and there's no lack of opinion as to whether rituals and religion was sort of uh, an accidental offshoot of our developing brain or whether it really had some sort of an adaptive value. But uh, one of the precepts of uh, cultural ecology is that if there's an activity that is expensive, expensive in terms of energy and time and effort put into it, if, if we have an, a, an activity that's expensive in those terms, and if that activity lasts over many generations, and if it's widespread, then you know you, there are good grounds for thinking that it should have some sort of adaptive value. And many people that approach religion from that, uh, well, not from that, from other perspectives, uh, sort of said, no, it doesn't have any adaptive value. It's just an accident. It's you know an aberration. It's an uh, exaptation to use. Uh, some of the technical terms of sociobiologists. Um, and religion really filled all of those criteria. You know, it's, it's very expensive. People put more time and effort into rituals than most normal activities, right. uh, and many people do it. And it's persisted over many tens of thousands of years, and it's very widespread, almost universal, if not universal. And so it should have some sort of an adaptive value. And so we start asking, okay, what could that be? So it was an interesting problem. It was an interesting problem to, to try to wrestle with and to come up with some solutions to. And so that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book. And also to chronicle basically how things have changed, how our ideas of ritual and religion have changed as our technology has changed, as the resources that we rely upon change, as our society changes, as we need to adapt to new kinds of uh, features. One of the best 
examples of that is uh, ancestor cults. Now, in most hunting and gathering societies, simple hunting and gathering societies that seem to characterize the last few million years, um, when people die, uh, the living avoid them. You can't even mention their name in many cultures for many years after they die. You don't want them to come back. But once you get into agriculture, once you get into resources that are inherited, whether it's land or fishing sites or other kinds of things, all that changes. And all of a sudden, you find that ancestors are kept in the house. A lot of times, they're buried in the, in the floor of the house. Mm -hmm. So it's like burying your grandparents in the basement, you know, and going down and talking to them on occasion. Uh, very strange behavior from our perspective and from a simple hunter and gatherer perspective. So why did that change happen? Um, well, when uh, inheritance becomes important, um, that's, a, I think, one of the key elements in that fundamental shift. And also um, when social control becomes fairly important you, and you can enlist the idea of ancestors giving out uh, benefits or retribution. If you don't do what you're supposed to do, the ancestors will send sickness to you or right. do other things to uh, make you have an accident. And people are always having those, so you can always <laughs> say, well, you, weren't, you didn't pull your weight in uh, the last feast or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. So it's a, they become a really important uh, means of social control, too. So uh, just trying to figure out why some of these fundamental changes, why monotheism emerged, why um, some of the war deities become prominent at certain times, uh, all of those questions can be related back, I think, to basic adaptations sure. in cultures. And then there was uh, one more important goal that I think I had in, in writing that book, and that was to really make the argument that, you know, the, the inherent, what seems to be an inherent penchant, an inherent proclivity for engaging in rituals and for believing in the supernatural stems from a fundamental biological adaptation that may be a million or more years old, and that that has really become part of our genes just as language, our, our penchant, our ability to absorb language at a very early age has become part of our genes, and just as, as kinship, our feelings for people that raise us and that we're raised with, um, on an emotional basis, that that all becomes part of our genetic heritage, our, our genetic um, baggage, if you wish, and that, uh, you know, some sort of a, a fundamental emotional response to ritual and concepts of the supernatural is also part of that, uh, as is music, our response to music and rhythm and art and dance and singing, uh, I think that's all part of a big package. And so that to say that we can um, just get rid, as Dawkins would like, uh, of religion is like saying, well, we can get rid of art or we can get rid of hmm. music or rhythm. I think it's part of human nature 
at least not not in terms of every individual having the same response, but in terms of the populations of having most people most of the time having some sort of response, or at least a large proportion of the population having an innate sort of attraction to these things, an innate response. That uh, opens up a little bit of a slippery slope because then you will have to ask, well, does that mean that religious ideas are true? Well, it's like asking whether music is true or art is true. Well, <clears throat> you can put any content you want into a painting. What's true is not the content, but our reaction, our emotional response to that. It's sort of like poetry, you know. It's, it's uh it's not the content that matters it's the form it's the um it's our emotional responses to those things i think and so it um so it's it's sort of like saying well let's take a step back here and not look at the absolute claims of all these religions about god or about ancestors or about other things let's look at it as poetry. Let's look at, at as, as music. You know, there's some kinds of music that you respond to, and there are others that don't, and some people don't care about music. Some people don't have any sense of rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, think, I don't think an evangelical Christian would be very satisfied with your characterization of religion as like poetry. <laughs> no, I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. No, far from it. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I don't... I think the idea that uh, the there's only one true religion. It's like saying there's only one true music or there's only one true poetry or and all the others are anathema and <laughs> it's uh no it's uh, it's uh you know it's um it's almost like a a fascist viewpoint of you know what people are like mm. or what they should be like. And I, in reading your book, I think another purpose was, you know, in contrast to a lot of other theorists of religion, like Tylor or Geertz or Eliade or Fraser, um, you really want a theory of religion that is thoroughly grounded in the physical evidence, in the archaeology. And it seems like that was kind of a major purpose behind uh, shamans, sorcerers, and saints. Well, as an archaeologist, uh, absolutely. I mean, there <laughs> there are archaeologists, uh, you know, or there were, say, 50 years ago or 60 or 70 years ago that said that, you know, archaeology should only deal with economic uh, matters because that's what we have evidence for, you know, the bones and the stone tools and things like that, and that when you get into society and and uh, ritual or ideology and religion, that that's... Um, it's not easy to recover that, but um, I think that is a very, very biased perspective, a uh, very limited perspective, mm -hmm. because when you look at the archaeological records, I mean the uh, the huge monuments, the, the the biggest monuments that we have, are all ritual in nature, whether they're py the pyramids of Egypt or Stonehenge or the or the megalithic tombs or the Mayan temples. Or the Aztec temples. I mean, and the burials. Uh, some of the fantastic burials in China. I mean, the it's mind-boggling the amount of energy 
that's gone into them. And if we can't say anything about those, uh, the, the discipline would be a pretty hopeless lot as far as I'm concerned. So yes, we, we, need, we need to look at the physical evidence. And, and that's the only thing that can tell us how and when rituals and religious ideas developed. We, there is no other source of evidence. So if we're going to look at this from an evolutionary point of view, from an adaptive ecological point of view, we have to look at the physical evidence, absolutely, and try to develop, develop schemes, <clears throat> develop uh, theories and models to see how well the, these bits of material and some of these massive uh, monuments fit into some of these theories and which ones of them uh, account for them best. Hmm. So it's like any other scientific discipline in that respect, yeah. Well, since you brought that up, I would love to ask you about your philosophy of history. I'm not sure how much you engage with this, but do you consciously take a particular approach to providing the best explanation of of the evidence, like a, a kind of abductive inference or um, like I'm familiar with C.B. McCullough's work uh, or um, that, like do you try to say you know this particular explanation has explanatory scope plausibility explanatory power etc or is it is it a little bit different than that what's your approach in providing the best explanation of the evidence well depends on the context I mean in some situations we don't really know very much about uh, the archaeology or the rituals or other aspects of some of the societies. And when you're in that kind of a situation, you pretty much have to go in and just start looking around and, and then start figuring out, well, how, does this, how could this make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and archaeologists do that sometimes. But uh, they also, and, uh, you know, as... as as observations become more abundant, as you begin to have more data, actually look at more anchors, physical anchors, to say, well, this is what was going on. We know that they were building uh, monuments to the dead at this period and not before, and it's associated with inherited property or whatever it happens to be. As you start building those uh, observations, you can start developing a lot more models uh, that uh, track those developments and going out and testing them, comparing them and testing them. And that's, I think, pretty much the point that most archaeology is at at this point. We've got enough information after one or two centuries of excavations and observations and publications so that we have basic ideas to a lot of the fundamental changes that were taking place and when they took place. And there's still a number of contending models or theories about why these events were taking place and or why there was, say, the change uh, into ancestor cults or monotheism or whatever it happens to be. And and so we really do, I think, for the most part, create these uh, these different scenarios in our head and try to find as much 
supporting information as we can, supporting observations as we can to support our views and convince others. Uh, but, you know, as in all sciences, there are always exceptions to the expectations. There's, there's no theory that fits completely um, all the observations. And so we always have a little bit of contention, a little bit of argumentation, whether it's about climate warming or whether the Earth is flat or whatever it happens to be. Um, there's always room for argumentation. And uh, it's really an art rather than a science in that respect. And that you know, it depends on how well you can construct a a uh, framework that seems plausible and that seems to account for most of the observations and that can deal with the observations that don't uh, correspond to what you're expecting. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's, it's very much like the, the original academy in Greece that Socrates started out and basically said, okay, we lay out all the the observations on the table and all of the different explanations, and you just evaluate them and try to figure out which one seems to account for most observations most of the time. Mm. So, but people have different perspectives, obviously, as to the way the world should work and uh, the way they think it did work and does work. So, uh, lots of lots of ongoing arguments for sure. Well, you and a lot of other scholars will distinguish between traditional religions and book religions. What's the difference there? Right. Um, and I've gotten in trouble for this, too, for some people that don't like the, uh, the dichotomy. <laughs> um, but it, it's not a dichotomy that I made. It's one that other people like Howells and Iliadi and Joseph Campbell and people like that have... have um, have espoused, and uh, you know it, it's true in terms of critics that there's a gray area, there's a blurred area. But yeah. in terms of just overall concepts, I think it's still a very useful yeah. kind of distinction, where you have the book religions that are very experiential. That is, they try to involve people in the rituals. They try to uh, give people an experience of the ecstatic, an experience of the numinous, if you like. Mm -hmm. And and that's the part that I think is really the genetic inheritance. That is, we have this capacity for getting into altered states and to feeling as though we're connecting with greater a greater plan, whether that's a political plan or a religious plan or a plan of the universe, whatever it happens to be. Um, and you can do that through a number of different techniques that are used in traditional religions, like uh, hours and hours of drumming and dancing and singing and, um, and also fasting and all sorts of other things like that. And the, the traditional religion really does seem to espouse a view in which virtually everything in the environment is somehow related and is alive or has some sort of spirit in it, whether it's a rock or a table or a plant or an animal. 
uh, or the sky, whatever it happens to be, or water. Um, and that's that particular view is anathema to many of the so-called book religions, which try to codify everything and uh, separate people from these ecstatic experiences. So the book religions tend to be promoted by state organizations and uh, seem to be related to an attempt to control the population. And the, the last thing that they want is for people going off and interpreting spirits' wills on their own, or God's wills, if you wish. Uh, so they try to put a separation between people and direct contact with spiritual entities. And so they have the priests as the mediator, and everything is set down in a book or in certain specified ways, sort of like a cookbook or a mechanics manual. This is what you do with this ritual, and this is these are the words that have to be said. Whereas if you look at shamans, you know, nothing is written down, and everything is always varied uh, from one time to another, and it's um, more of an inspiration of the moment kind of thing. So on the one hand, you have the traditional religions that try to get as many people involved in these ecstatic experiences as possible because they are experiential. The, the, the experience of having an ecstatic or a numinous um, experience is what validates the religion. That's the way people know that it's real. Whereas in the book religions, they try to separate you out. They try to discourage dance. They never, never have people wear masks because putting a mask on can transform people, um, can transform their consciousness. So you don't want that with book religions. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I say, certainly there are transition or gray areas where you get a little bit of both. And, but you do get the extremes as well. And so it's a sort of a dimension of variability in religions. And mm -hmm. Most people today have grown up with the book religions and have no inkling as to what the traditional religion, religious experience is like. You know, it's like growing up and uh, only reading what jazz is like from a book as opposed to being in New Orleans in one of the little clubs and actually experiencing jazz. Yeah, and there are lots of differences that have been proposed for traditional versus book religions. I guess another one would be that book religions are typically moral systems, uh, very importantly, whereas traditional religions are uh, not really so much focused on morality. Oh, that's, uh, I think that's absolutely true, yeah. The, uh, once you get into hierarchical state systems, um, yeah, they want uh, the rules to be followed, and so they become very moralistic. Mm -hmm. Whereas in traditional religions, no, you don't get that. I mean, there are there are some morals there, but it's not it's not the same intensity. It's it's more like, well, this is just the mechanics of the way the universe works, and you know, if I don't know, if you uh, commit incest, well, you know, gods are going to be angry. <laughs> And you get what's coming to you, kind of thing. But uh, you know, it's just a matter of fact kind of thing. It's not. So it's a moral thing. It's just the way things work. That's it. Right. We talked, or I mentioned earlier, that there were a lot of different theories about how religion came about. And I wonder if you could ex explain some of the major theories 
of religion that are out there and then maybe explain your own theory and how it fits in with the others? Well, that's a vast field. But, yeah. Um, but some of the early notions about religion was that, uh, you know, ideas of the spirit came from when people were dreaming and that, um, you know, they, they realized that they, other people were basically unconscious and they came when they came awake they had all these fantastic stories to tell about what they did in their dreams mm-hmm. and obviously you know there was a disconnect there and so it was sort of an intellectual uh, attempt to explain why this that happens and also to explain death um, why people were alive one minute and you know inanimate uh, corpses the next minute um, but that's a very intellectual kind of approach to things mm-hmm. and doesn't really seem to account for the, the really fundamental emotion that people develop uh, when they're involved in traditional religions for the most part. And then you had Freud's idea about uh, um, you know incest and things like that and killing the father and... Uh, taboos uh, so but that's not uh, his ideas are not widely I mean there's no evolutionary mechanism in his ideas how these things could become so entrenched mm-hmm. in human societies um, so I'll just I'll just mention that the the first one you mentioned about dreams and death would probably be most associated with Tyler if if people want to look that up yeah yeah well, he was certainly one of the major proponents, but uh, far from the only one. Uh-huh. Um, and then, uh, and then Durkheim came along in the late 1800s, uh, sort of the father of modern sociology, and was proposing that well, um, religion really codifies all of the most important cultural values and provides a mechanism for trying to make sure that people in a society adhere to those values and stay with them. And that's still a fairly widely recognized approach and uh, a model that that many people still uh, follow. Mm -hmm. And I I think it has a fair amount to say for itself. Mm -hmm. Once again, there's not, uh, you know, he he was not an anthropologist, so he didn't deal with evolution so much and trying to figure out, well, how could this become part of society and it doesn't really account for the emotional the emotional reaction that most people or at least many people have to ritual you know okay if you codify society and uh, you develop these rituals but how does that become part of um, the emotional genetic heritage of the human species so you know there's some difficult aspects to his ideas. And then um, you have certainly the ideas that ritual is the result of our brain growing and uh, becoming a cultural organ and there being discrepancies between the old reptilian brain and the old mammalian brain and the new mammalian brain. And in, in order to make all these three, three parts of the brain mesh together um, because sometimes they don't communicate with each other. We need some sort of integrating mechanism which is 
ritual and ecstatic experiences in which there's sort of like fireworks that go off inside the head and and integrate all these parts of the brain. So that's that's another approach as well. Um, and it's sort of a, a byproduct of our development of intelligence and ability to transmit culture. And what else is there? Um, and that's pretty much, I think, what Dawkins would um, promote or advocate, is that, uh, you know, it's really an exaptation. Uh, it's a something that was never had never had any adaptive value in itself. It was a byproduct, an mm-hmm. incidental outcome. There's also more recently this uh, this idea of costly signaling in some of the behavioral ecology schools, saying that well, one of the things we do is put on big displays for other people to see how powerful we are, so that that reduces the actual conflict between individuals and Rituals involve so much time and energy that they must be some sort of a signaling display, some sort of a cost, well, a costly signaling display. Um, but I, I think it's a lot more. I mean, it's undoubtedly it does serve that uh, purpose, especially when you get into monumental architectures like mm-hmm. the pyramids and the Mayan temples. But I think it also misses the again the fundamental emotional reaction. So my my own um, ideas about this are a little bit closer to Durkheim, I guess. One of the characteristics of all of these intense emotional states, intense religious emotional states, the ecstatic states, uh, the numinous states, etc., is that they are most reliably produced under stress, under situations of duress. Uh, especially fasting or starvation, lack of sleep, um, monotonous uh, repetitions of things, um, and that uh, many animals go into very altered kinds of states when they get into stressed situations as well, Hmm. and people do. And if you don't eat or you don't sleep for long enough, you start hallucinating. Okay, so it's a it's a mind altering altering uh, um, reaction, physiological reaction that we have to some of these um, stresses, and in many respects, it they bear striking resemblances to some of the ecstatic religious ritual states, and so it it occurred to me that um, this may be the origin of the incorporation of ecstatic states into uh, a cultural repertory or an emotional repertory in that they could be induced. And one of the other characteristics of these states is that they're very strongly bonding. If you go through starvation or warfare or um, you know a, a sleep-deprived situation or a ritual initiation with somebody else, you develop a very strong emotional bond to them, uh, whether you're in Australia or modern society, um, and that this could be one of the adaptive functions of early rituals uh, where you needed to uh, cooperate with other people in order to survive, especially in terms of um, being welcomed into other other people's communities when 
everybody in your own community was starving and you needed to move out and go someplace else. Well, if you need to abandon your home territory because everybody's starving there, you need to have some sort of connection with another group elsewhere in order to be welcomed into that group. And there are a few basic ways you can do that. They're all emotionally based, but one of them is kinship, and mm -hmm. another one of them is ritual, these kinds of very strongly bonding rituals. Um, and once you recognize somebody as a ritual brother or an actual brother and through kinship, uh, it becomes very hard to turn them away because of the strong, very strong emotional bond you have with that person. And uh, basically, I think uh, in the very early days of human evolution, when there were only a few thousand of our early ancestors in existence, and they were all struggling to with starvation and with uh, survival, having these um, close emotional bonds with other groups, I think, um, would have meant the difference between life and death for many, many groups. And the ones that did have them survived. The ones that did engage in rituals with each other and went through these stressful periods and survived together. And, uh, and they continued to induce these ecstatic experiences as a bonding experience through art artificially through sleep deprivation and fasting and other things. Huh. So I think that's fundamentally the origin of it. Uh, and that explains, for me, the, uh, why the emotions are so strong and why many of the other aspects of rituals that evoke emotions, the rhythms and the dancing and the singing are all part of it as well. Hmm. Well, so just switching gears a bit, one of the most surprising things about prehistoric religion is that apparently we aren't even the first species to practice religion. What can archaeology tell us about Neanderthal religion? Ah, a very contentious field. Um, when you say we aren't, I assume you mean uh, we as members of the Homo sapiens sapiens species or subspecies. Right. Uh, some people don't even think that Neanderthals were should be included in the human species. Other people do, mm -hmm. uh, just like a separate race almost. And so when you get into this area, there are huge debates in the literature about whether Neanderthals had language, whether they had culture, whether they could hunt effectively, whether they had any sort of ritual life, whether they had any uh, planning ability or forethought, whether, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, and there are two extreme camps in this debate. One says, no, they didn't have any of those abilities. And the other says, yes, they had all of the same abilities, maybe in a more basic form, but they had all the same abilities that we do today, too. And so uh, when you get into the archaeology of this, it becomes very interesting to see which of these models you can support. I, I did actually a fair amount of work as an undergraduate in France and uh, became fairly familiar with a lot of the Neanderthal uh, archaeological remains there. There are a number of indications that Neanderthals at least had a fairly rudimentary and basic uh, ritual life as well. There are burials, and people argue up back and forth as to whether those were real burials or accidental um, burials. 
Uh, I think they were real. I think the evidence is pretty clear-cut. There's um, special treatment of some kinds of bones, like bare teeth in some sites. Uh, the Neanderthals were carrying around strange objects like pyrites and shells for, for miles and miles. Um, and they were also using ochres, red ochre, red hematite, red uh, iron oxide and manganese oxide, black manganese oxide. Well, we don't have any paintings that the Neanderthals might have done, but what were they using them for? Some of the recent studies show that uh, these were ground down to a certain width and had traces of wear on them that indicate that they were being used on soft materials like leather or skins. And you know the width is the same for most of these, indicating that there was a particular line width that people were after. So this implies decoration, symbolic activity, art of some sort. And then uh, we also get some very, very interesting structures. I was really very fortunate to be able to see one of these. It's closed to the public, and as far as I know, closed to everybody at this point, in the cave of Bruniquel, which is in southwestern France. I accompanied Jean-Claude and François Rousseau at that time um, <clears throat> into the cave, and we crawled on our bellies for meters and meters to get inside that cave. It finally opened up, um, but, you know, three or four hundred meters inside the cave... Oh, that's a long ways. Oh, it is. I mean, you know, you think three three football fields, right? Wow. Three uh, Inside this cave, and no light at all. And it, it opened up into this large chamber, and on the floor was a circle of stalagmites that had been broken off and laid down horizontally to form a circle. And in that was, was the remains of a fireplace. Francois Rousseau was able to get some of the carbon from that and to date it, dated back to 50,000 years ago, uh, indicating there was Neanderthals that had built that. Uh, so that they had gone into that cave 300 meters, uh, there was no other entrance, and built this structure It could never have been any habitation. It had to be some sort of a ritual structure. Mm -hmm. And caves are wonderful places for creating altered states of consciousness. You know, there's, mm. you're in there and there's no sound, there's no light unless you have a light with you. Uh, you become totally disoriented. Uh, that's one of the major reasons for going into caves, uh, is this feeling that you're in another world, basically. Uh, so if Neanderthals are clearly doing that, and I think very clearly doing it for ritual purposes. They had concepts. They were dealing, they were playing around with altered states of consciousness, uh, maybe not very frequently and only in special locations. And there are two or three other examples of the same kind of thing, but this was the clearest one I've ever seen. Mm. So uh, I think there are a lot of good indications that Neanderthals had some kind of a <clears throat> ritual life, religious concepts between the burials and the use of the ochres. Well, why would the burials and the ochre, ochre being just a naturally tinted clay that you can kind of draw things with, um, why, why would those two things be some evidence for a ritual or a religious life in Neanderthals? 
animals don't bury their uh, their kind. You know, they mm-hmm. leave the carcass out on the surface. And there are a number of cultures that do the same thing in Tibet and other places. Um, that's a pretty traditional practice. So the burial itself indicates some sort of... Uh, I mean, you could argue it's for hygienic, hygienic purposes, but... Uh, that doesn't really stand up very well for most of these instances. So the burial by itself indicates some sort of special status, some sort of belief about the person, uh, this person's spirit, person's influence, something about them that transcends the the living body. Uh, so that to the extent that there's, it implies some sort of recognition of a spiritual essence inside a person. Uh, it implies ritual evidence. And in the case of Rigoldou, uh, which is one of the most controversial uh, caves, but, uh, or burials, I think it's, it's a very well-documented one as far as I'm concerned. But there was also a bear that was buried right next to the, uh, the Neanderthal uh, and covered with a huge slab of stone. I think there's good evidence that the two are related, indicating some sort of a a bear cult associated with uh, human burials, at least in that one case. So there are a number of reasons. And then, uh, yeah, the ochre is not so much an indication of ritual as it is a symbolic activity. Um, They're using red for some sort of a quality that it has that may be related to ritual. And in fact, the use of red ochre in most cultures in the world is for ritual purposes or because it conveys a power to the objects that uh, they wouldn't ordinarily have. It implies life, it implies blood, it implies lots of... I mean, red ochre is one of the most universally valued materials, coloring agents in the prehistoric world and in the historic traditional society world as well. So it's by implication, perhaps, more than anything else. But it's, you know, it makes ritual activity more believable, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you like. Yeah. Well, ecology is very important to your account of prehistoric religion. What are some of the connections between ecology and prehistoric religion? And also, first, what do you mean by ecology? Basically, it has to do with the way energy is obtained and used to confer fitness and survival and reproductive success upon individuals in a particular context. So um, at, a, at a broad level, that's what ecology is. The cultural ecology has to do with the way the environment influences cultures <clears throat> and especially resources. So the nature of resources, the problems associated with resources, the way people have to adapt to acquire and use resources adapted physically and in terms of their behavior. Hominins, our very earliest ancestors, they're not much different from other animals. And so they are treated by anthropologists and archaeologists pretty much in the same way that animal ecologists look at animals and try to figure out, okay, why did they develop bipedal stance? Why did they start using tools? What 
what adaptive advantage did it confer upon them? What was the, why were the other options not available for adaptations? It's almost uh, like a version of standard animal ecology and behavioral ecology when you're dealing with those early forms. And so that's pretty much the way why I focused on the adaptive value of close emotional bonds, whether they're through kinship or ritual or other means of establishing close emotional bonds. And, you know, you start thinking around, well, how do you establish really unbreakable close emotional bonds with other people? There aren't that many different techniques. I mean, there's sex and marriage and kinship and rituals. As we progress technologically, as we get further along with cultural evolution, what we start finding is that with some of the more complex, much later hunting and gathering societies, like the ones on the northwest coast in Canada and the northwest United States, that they start being able to produce and store surplus resources, surplus foods, whether they're salmon, dried salmon, or dried meat, or whether they're roots or grain or whatever it happens to be. And once you start developing a regular surplus food supply, this opens up a whole other range of problems that are not really handled very well by traditional ecological approaches Hmm. because there are no other animals that can store foods and transform them into other things, other benefits. You know, you can only, all they can do is eat them. They don't give them away. They don't establish debts or anything like that, but people do. And so this opens up a, a new branch of ecological studies, and that is how surplus resources can be used to enhance individual or group survival and reproductive benefits. It's a branch of ecology that I've called paleopolitical ecology. (laughs) And there are a number of different techniques that can be used, uh, one of which is feasting. That is, you use surpluses to give people feasts, and then you use the feast to create debts that uh, have to be reciprocated, or uh, and that builds political structures, that builds uh, power within communities, that well, it goes on and on and on. Uh, and rituals can be used in the same way, um, to especially when you're dealing with ancestors and things like that. You can start manipulating a lot of rituals to build megalithic tombs for the ancestors, right. to build Stonehenge as you know, for chiefly war deities or whatever it happens to be, to build pyramids. I mean, all this stuff is is based on the use of surpluses by people that have acquired power and are trying to impress their view of religion, their, their uh, construct of what uh, God is like or their ancestors are like or whatever it happens to be. They're trying to impress this upon other people and they're using surpluses to do that. So uh, it's a it's an entirely different ball game once you start getting surplus food production through agriculture or through intensive 
hunting and gathering technologies. Um, and I think that this this use of surpluses for political ends and and from there to personal survival and reproductive benefits, that that really uh, accounts for some of the most spectacular monuments that we have in existence in archaeology. And uh, a lot of the major cultural developments that have happened in the past 20,000 years also. And the list goes on. Painted caves in, in Europe to the, you know, the megaliths to the temples and pyramids and just keeps in, and the great art and goes on and on. Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's a, a good overview of your view of ecology and religion and culture. Well, there are thousands of questions that I would like to ask you about your work, but I think I'll finish with, well, when you consider what the archaeological evidence has to say about prehistoric religion, for you, what's the take-home message about who we are as human beings and what this archaeological evidence says about who we are as human beings? Well, I think the take-home message, uh, the the bottom line here is that Dawkins is wrong. <laughs> that, <laughs> that this is this is not just a, a you know a, an aberration. That it's not something that uh, we should get rid of, or that that is um, you know counterproductive, or just don't. I mean, certainly any any aspect of human endeavor that you want to look at, you can find abuses and misapplications and problems with. Um, but um, no, I, I think the, the basic message is that through, a, through adaptation and evolution, this is, whether we like it or not, part of our genetic makeup. It's part of you know, seeing, enjoying rituals, whether it's the graduation ritual or whether it's a ritual of having a Christmas dinner or whether a Thanksgiving dinner or whether it's a ritual of having birthdays or whether it's the ritual of, uh, you know, going to church or a temple or whatever it happens to be, we like rituals and we respond to them. We like seeing the same thing done in the same way and uh, we shouldn't try to cut it off from our existence and say, no, this is—it's uh, been—it's led to too many problems in the past. You know, we have to try to stamp it out, get rid of it, like the Russians did. No, I don't think it's not going to work. And like um, music or dance or art or poetry, uh, we should uh, not focus on it for the content, but for the experience that it. It provides this because that is, I think, really a fundamental emotion that we have and that uh, really does make us human. It's, it's not our intellectual capacity that makes us human. Computers have the intellectual capacity. You know, if you look at um, some of the common sayings that we have, if you come across somebody that doesn't express any emotion, no love, no feeling of kinship, no feeling of art or beauty or or um, ritual or anything like that. What do you say about him? Well, you say, well, he's not human, right? 
Oh, he's a Vulcan. Yeah, basically, yes. Um, and so I, I would argue that it's, it's really our emotional complex that really makes us human and distinguishes us from the other animals. And, um, you know, to try to cut part of that off and say, you know, well, we shouldn't have music or we shouldn't have recognized kinship or we shouldn't engage in, you know, talk or gossip or things like that. It's, um, it's just a really counterproductive thing to do and will only dehumanize us. And you would say ritual or religious practice is uh, maybe just as essential to our human nature as uh, kinship or chatting with one another. Yeah, well, I think they are. Uh, it depends on you know, how you want to define it. And as I said, not everybody is going to experience these feelings to the same degree. Um, there are a lot of people that are amusical or arrhythmic, um, but for most people, you know, it's a reality of what they feel on an innate basis. Very interesting. Well, you don't know this, but I actually spend quite a bit of time on my site uh, arguing against Dawkins, so this this interview will fit quite well into my oh. <laughs> body of work. <laughs> well, good. Yeah, I didn't know that. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Dr. Hayden. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Well, it's been fun for me. Thank you.